We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. I'm so excited to be joined today by Dr. Ruby Alice. She is someone that is not only has a personal journey uh, in the medical field, uh, both personally and professionally, but she's also someone that's helping tremendously uh, in this fight for medical freedom and to change the trajectory of what's happening in this country as it relates to the healthcare field. So welcome. I'm excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background and where where you started. I go, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where, where did you start in the medical field and what brought you here? I started pre-med at University of Florida. And at the time I was probably wanting to be family medicine or do psychiatry. And I had my own health journey with um, going to the infirmary and I had a lot of bronchitis symptoms. And every time I'd go, it would just get diagnosed as bronchitis, another round of antibiotics, and you know, five-minute appointment, and I, my health was spiraling down. And I thought, I don't think I want to do this for people. Like I wanted to dig deeper. I wanted to know what was going on. And it turned out there were a couple of things I had that weren't properly diagnosed. I had a cough variant asthma. And I also probably had systemic lupus since I was a teenager. Wow. And I was learned, undiagnosed, I take what, it. What's that? I take it that, it was un, I take it that the uh, lupus mm-hmm. was undiagnosed. It was for decades. And I saw DOs, MDs, naturopaths, and I managed the symptoms. By the time it was diagnosed by a rheumatologist in my 40s, he said, Laura, I think studying natural medicine saved your life. So- oh. I learned how easy, even when you know healthcare, how easy it is to fall through the cracks because when you're sick, it's hard to think for yourself. And when you're not sick and you're in medicine, the last thing you want to do is go to the doctor. True, true. Yeah, I think I I, I would imagine that a lot of people across the country probably have stories where um, you know they have been afflicted by something and they have gone to countless doctors and feel defeated because they're not getting answers. And um, more than just not getting answers, they're, I imagine they're feeling very dismissed by the medical system and, and the really the, the medical professionals. Right. And some of that gets lost just by having such a specialized model of medicine, which you know the right specialist that somebody needs can do wonders. But sometimes um, the force gets lost for the trees. So through your own personal journey, you ended up, it sounds like, diverting from going into kind of mainstream traditional Western medicine, um, maybe the, I always call it the, the canned solution, one size fits all, the Kaiser Permanentes of the world, 
And uh, it sounds like based on your own personal journey, it led you down the path of more natural um, medicine healing, correct? Natural, yes. And more holistic. I mean, I do a lot of um, Western diagnostic work with my patients. If there, nobody's helped them, I really take time to figure out tough cases. Sometimes someone has undiagnosed celiac disease or, you know, active um, Epstein-Barr, things that a lot of Western doctors miss. Right. Well, and what's interesting is I think that there's a lot of parallels between what you're describing and what's actually happening today as it relates to COVID-19 and uh, the willingness for the medical community to acknowledge anything outside of kind of this mainstream government narrative and specifically as it relates to vaccine injury as well as long-haul COVID and, and others. Yes. And one of the things that I'm finding just with colleagues, I'm in different chat groups with like-minded colleagues of different specialties. And as we t try to talk to patients sometimes about vaccine injury, they're in denial because they have so bought the propaganda and then they actually don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult because it's like they've been gaslit and in turn then their provider gets gaslit. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've shared a lot on the podcast, my own personal journey um, in, in the last two and a half years and trying to understand um, how to actually get a medical professional that's willing to acknowledge um, anything outside of the mainstream, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, most recently I'll share with you and be happy to share with the audience that um, everyone I think knows at this point that I have a heart condition. I ended up going into a cardiac arrhythmia this was about a month ago and my husband and I were driving around and kind of going through different scenarios of what emergency room to take me to that would allow him to actually physically be in the emergency room with me because neither one of us are vaccinated. We ended up settling on a hospital and although they allowed us to, to be in the emergency room, they allowed him to be there as well. Believe it or not, they actually told me that I needed to put a mask on in order to receive treatment. And you're talking about a patient that's in a cardiac arrhythmia. My heart rate was well over 250 beats a minute, and they're asking me to put a mask on. I'm already oxygen deprived because my heart isn't perfusing properly, right? And it's just, um, it never ceases to amaze me what uh, the lack of critical thinking and questioning that's happening in the medical environment. Is that what you're experiencing as well? Yes. And I would wonder, are your providers in that hospital oxygen deprived themselves because of wearing a mask? Sure. Um, but yes, it's, um, it's a lack of common sense. So right. I mean, people need to breathe. And then people, I had patients, I, I relocated from Portland, Oregon to Sedona last fall. And I still have a Portland practice on telehealth, partly. Okay. Very part time. But um, I had people come in, they had terrible headaches or were super tired, and they would come in wearing three masks sometimes. And I would say, like, I think you'll feel better if you're getting some oxygen. And they just would not take it off. It was really challenging to work with that level of fear. 
Right, which I think is a really um, interesting point as it relates to the overall pandemic and the psychological impact that this has had on mainstream America. And the fact that I think at this point we can all acknowledge this has less to do with public health and safety and everything to do with um, driving a specific agenda. And what I found fascinating when you and I had a chance to connect was your story uh, about how you personally have had experience witnessing true communism and how that actually correlated to you being able to really be aware with your finger on the pulse early on of what was happening in this country with regard to the lockdowns and the mandates and um, how, again, you, you were able to look at this from a completely different perspective than probably most Americans. Yes. My parents are Cuban refugees. They left Cuba in 1960 and then came to the States. And then my father got a really good job in Nicaragua and that's where I was born in 71. And then they went through a second communist revolution in 79. And, and so I lived through that. And for the beginning we left because there was a war but as soon as like it was announced that churches and small businesses had to close, I was like, oh my gosh, communism is in America now. And I was amazed. And of course, most people I knew couldn't see it. The only people I knew who could really see it had lived through it. Um, some were Chinese. One patient of mine was Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. Another person I knew from Venezuela could see it. But Americans, you know, if I mentioned it, they just looked at me like I had a third eye on my forehead or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting um, as I as I go through this exploration of what's happening and we start to peel back the layers of the work that we're doing here at the Unity Project. It never ceases to amaze me. Um, we come across people like you quite a bit. Um, most recently, we met someone uh, from China who has lived under extreme communist rule. And they're obviously, you know, everyone in that perspective really has their finger on the pulse of what's happening. And to your point, you know, we see Americans that are really um, buying lock, stock, and barrel into what's happening. And you, know, you mentioned there's no common sense. It's fascinating to me when you, you have schools that are locked down, you have hiking trails and beaches that are locked down, but then you can go to your local Costco or you can go to your, your Best Buy or one of these big box stores and, and go shopping. It, I mean, one has to be able to step back and critically think and say, where is the, abs the logic in that, right? Right, but a lot of people couldn't see it. And Amazing. Interesting. So, yeah. So, so fast forward. Now you're, you've you um, have been on this personal journey, and it led you down, I think, an incredible path as a doctor um, to be more uh, inquisitive, more critically thinking, uh, think outside the box as it relates to ailments before the pandemic, and now you find yourself in the middle of a pandemic as a medical practitioner in Oregon. And you're trying to treat patients, trying to uh, critically think and help people understand that, you know, again, this is not about public health and safety. This is more about something else that's going on that's probably a little bit more nefarious. 
and um, and now you moved to Sedona, and I understand you have put together an event, correct? Called the Path Forward. Yes, it's Tell part retreat. It's part retreat, part conference. I had this vision. I was um, that came to me here in Sedona after treating a lot of caregivers. I was treating quite a few nurses and some therapists and doctors of different kinds as patients. And I was seeing just the burnout. I was getting reports that there were higher rates of suicide than ever from the therapists and just how dramatic it was for the nurses to be seeing what was going on in the hospitals. And I thought it would be really powerful to bring healthcare providers together to do some healing together and, and to learn. And I started putting together this vision that would be part learning, part healing. And, um, and I was pleasantly surprised that some wonderful doctors stepped up to the plate to want to come and take an interest like Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. And I'm glad you're going to, going to be a part of it now, Laura. Yeah, we're thrilled. We're thrilled to be a part of it. And what I was particularly excited about when I heard what you were doing, first of all, I love the name Path Forward because I think that really, um, very, I think that very well sums up what we need to do at this point is find a path forward. And I've had these conversations with Dr. Paul Merrick and Dr. Uh, Pierre Corey. I know the FLCCC is doing uh, an event in Florida. I believe it's in October as well. And what I love about what you're doing and what the FLCCC is doing is that you guys are coming, bringing the healthcare community together to find out, to figure out a way to really re restore trust and faith in the medical system. I think um, a lot of trust has been broken over the last two and a half years. And uh, I was telling Pierre, my, my thought is that we're starting to almost organically see two healthcare systems developing. One uh, where people are very in tune and they're seeking out medical advice from doctors like yourself or the doctors that are with the FLCCC. And I know you're also associated with FLCCC. Um, and then you're also seeing the uh, kind of almost digging your heels in response from the larger um, healthcare systems. And I, and, I, and I heard a really interesting statistic recently that, you know, 20 years ago, you might have had 20% of doctors that were associated with these, these large medical institutions like the Kaiser Permanentes of the world. And now, you know, fast forward to present date, you actually have the opposite. Now you have over 80% of the medical practitioners um, that are no longer operating in individual pract uh, practices, but they're actually associated with these large uh, medical institutions. And so it's uh, it's really been a, a almost upending of the medical system, in my opinion, because you have doctors now that are more beholden to um, these, these large institutions that are not out there practicing individually, that are not out there critically thinking. And so I think it's incredibly refreshing. And in my opinion, will probably be the saving grace for the medical profession, doing, you know, doctors doing what you're talking about doing. Building a parallel system and going outside those corporate entities. Correct. Correct. 
a lot of doctors have gone into those bigger systems because probably economic reasons, I would think. Right. Um, yeah, I would imagine economic reasons. And, and um, I would imagine too, and this is just me kind of speculating, but on some level they there might have been a thought of uh, the ability to engage in deeper clinical uh, trials, clinical research, uh, because you have more resources associated with a larger institution like that. But what's interesting is that um, it, it's it, it's somewhat counterintuitive, right? Because um, although you you would think that they have more resources and there there would be more research coming out of these these institutions. Um, it seems to me like what's happening is it's just aggregating all the medical professionals and then expecting them to fall in line with um, whatever the pharmaceutical or government narrative is um, and direction that they're setting. Mm-hmm. Right. And what just passed with AB 2098 was pretty scary for California. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, what happened with AB 2098 and the fact that Gavin Newsom just signed that into law in the state of California is horrendous. Um, it's it, in my opinion, is the first step in the total dismantling of the medical system as we know it. It is um, the destruction of informed consent. It is a First Amendment violation for sure. It's the government stepping in and telling doctors what they can say and how they can say it and when they can say it. Um, And what's even more surprising is that we're now seeing mainstream media uh, start to kind of dip their toe in the water and ease into this, the, um, I think, messaging that we've all known, right, that there are dangers with these vaccines. There has not been enough trial with these vaccines. Um, I saw an article recently that came out in JAMA that stated there's now conclusive evidence that um, the mRNA vaccine does transfer in breast milk. And so they're actually giving guidance to breastfeeding mothers to hold off on breastfeeding for a certain period of time after they've been vaccinated. So you have all of this this evidence that's, that's now come out. And I think it doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum at this point, I think we've seen enough evidence to acknowledge that A, the vaccines don't uh, prevent or pre- prevent acquisition or transmission of the virus. Uh, we know that there are dangers in the vaccines. We've seen it uh, through VAERS reporting, and we've also seen it in, in the pediatric population. Uh, so, and now you're starting to see, uh, you know, mainstream institutions like Wall Street Journal and JAMA coming out and publishing articles and acknowledging the the concerns around these vaccines. So. You, you, add, you, you add all that together, and then you contrast that against the fact that California just signed a bill that will not allow medical practitioners to discuss anything outside of the mainstream CDC government narrative of pushing these vaccines. Uh, one has to question, what was the logic in that? Right. And if it happened in California, odds are it will happen in Oregon and Washington next because those three states seem to move in tandem. Sure, absolutely. And I think um, you, you bring up a, an even larger point, which is that if it happened in California, the likelihood of this happening more nationwide is extremely good. The uh, California tends to be the tip of the spear for bad legislation that 
uh, tends to go across the entire country. Uh, just I'll cite one example, SB, I believe it's SB 107, which is a bill that will allow California to become a sanctuary state for uh, gender affirming acts with children uh, without their parent consent or knowledge was just passed. And what I found to be really disturbing with that particular piece of legislation, aside from the legislation it's, itself, is that Scott Weiner, who is the author, the primary author of that bill, has stated in an interview that he's been working with 19 other states to author similar pieces of legislation. So let me say that again, 19 other states. And um, so people should be terrified that this bill, that these bills are being passed in California, but particularly AB 2098. Right. It makes me feel at peace about having moved to Arizona. I don't see that kind of thing happening here anytime soon, but fingers crossed. Right. So um, tell me, what is your vision for, for the future and the work that you're doing? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I do feel called to help caregivers with burnout. I um, also, I put people through intensives. I have people come from out of town to Sedona and I work with them over five to seven days to help get their nervous system calm. Years ago, I had a, a case of this woman um, went through this high conflict divorce, tons of stress, custody battle for like a year. And the next year she was diagnosed with both cancer and MS. And I realized our physiology is not meant to be sustaining those high stress states. So a lot of what I do in my work is help people get into that calmer parasympathetic state. And, you know, things start to function better in that state. I also want to continue treating long haulers and vaccine injury reactions. I was amazed, you know, being on the list of providers for the FLCCC, some very sick people sought me out. Like one man was on dialysis for kidney failure and with early treatment and ivermectin, he was fine. And so I was going to say, it, are you having success in treating? Yes, mm -hmm. I am. The ones I have not had success with, I just have two patients die. One wasn't really my patient. I got hired to do medical advocacy for him. And he'd already been kind of hospitalized. You know, they didn't want to give him anything helpful. I was trying to talk to the ICU doctor. They wouldn't do ivermectin. They wouldn't do IV vitamin C. I bet can his friends come visit him? And they said, he has to have only 48 hours to live. And then his friends were like his family in Portland. By the time they put him on a vent on a Friday afternoon, he died Saturday morning. Nobody got to say goodbye. And oh my God, it's tragic. It's tragic. So it's like hospitals. I know ben, Dr. Ben Marble, who's going to be at the retreat, he calls them hospitals now. And, um, you know, it's a great label. I know, like people get imprisoned in there and then some of them end up dying alone. It's very sad. Yeah. You know, it's, um, at, at the very least, it's a, it's, a, it's a Hippocratic oath, in my opinion, violation. At most, um, and I've said this in the past, it feels very much like murder. 
you know, it's a Hippocratic Oath violation because, you know, that very basic tenet of first do no further harm seems to be completely set aside uh, in the last two and a half years. And I don't know how much it was set aside before, too, with some invasive treatments. Um, but yes, it's a whole new level right now. And people dying is mean, almost tragic. Right. And, and what's amazing to me is, um, and, and maybe you can, you can help me explore this, it seems to me um, that the medical professionals that are very deep into this, um, that are you know the ones that are working at the hospital, that are denying patients um, access to potential life-saving alternative medications, um, they're, they're very unwilling to even have the conversation, to even explore the possibility that um, there might be another path of medical intervention that could be incredibly, have incredible positive outcomes for patients. I wonder about that and how much is it because medicine is so litigious and there are like standards of care you're supposed to be following, especially if you're an allopathic doctor in a hospital setting, how much they would fear like if they have been recommending the vaccine for a year and then all these deaths start to happen how much they're afraid of lawsuits or you know, the repercussions of that if they come out with the truth. Right. Well, I think regardless of what it is, there's clearly an issue that's, that's existing right now in the medical system. And it's causing, I believe, a lot of unnecessary fatalities um, and causing a tremendous amount of trauma and, and tragedy and heartache um, in the human population. And I believe that for years to come, we will continue to see the fallout of this. And uh, I'm thrilled that there are doctors like you. I believe that history will look back on doctors like you as um, saving not only this country, but saving the medical system and really humanity. Um, so I am, I'm incredibly honored to know you. I'm incredibly excited about uh, the work that you're doing. And I'm really excited about this event that's happening. So before we close out, let's tell everyone a little bit about the event, how they can find out about it, when it's happening, where it's happening. It's happening um, next week. It starts October 13th. There's just an opening ceremony. And then Friday, Saturday, 10 to 6. And then on Sunday, the 16th it ends. That will be nine to one. And it's at the Sedona Creative Life Center and people are staying in hotels or Airbnbs nearby. And, you know, the, the first day we have um, Dr. Jennifer Margulies uh, leading us through a therapeutic writing exercise and Dr. Tenpenny talking about spirituality. I'm going to give a talk on healing trauma on the first night. And then we have, let's see, Dr. Andy Farella, who's been involved with America's Frontline Doctors and put on her own conferences, will be talking about the importance of finding one's tribe. And part of my vision for this was really creating social support. Mm -hmm. um, on Friday, no, Saturday, we're going to have Dr. Peter McCullough talk about lessons learned from the pandemic response. 
And then we'll have um, Dr. Henry Ely and Dr. Jeff Barkey talk about vaccine injuries and treating Fantastic. them. And then Sunday um, will be more about the path forward in healthcare. That's fantastic. Well, I am personally thrilled. I can't wait to attend. And I encourage everyone to follow the work that you're doing. How can people follow the work that you're doing beyond uh, just this particular event? My clinic here in Sedona is Sedona Holistic Medicine. And they can look up that website to contact me. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute honor talking to you today. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person, and I encourage everyone to follow the work that Dr. Rubialis is doing. I think your story is very unique given um, your own personal medical journey um, and how, you know, with your own personal health and also your experience with communism at a young age and being able to identify very early on what was happening in this country and as it relates to the pandemic. So thank you so much thank for joining you. us today. Thank you. I appreciate our conversation. I look forward to seeing you soon. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the Donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.